When the Supreme Court ruled against race-based admissions at Harvard University, it opened the door to preference programs across the board, challenges to them. Recently, a federal district court in Tennessee forced the Small Business Administration to suspend applications from small businesses to join the 8A program for disadvantaged companies. For what this all means, where we're headed here, we turn to Haynes Boone procurement attorney Zach Prince. And Zach, what does all this mean? Well, that's a great question. Folks who are familiar with the 8A program know that to apply and be accepted to the program, somebody has to demonstrate, uh, the business has to demonstrate that it's owned and controlled by one or more socially and economically disadvantaged individuals. And those terms are defined carefully in the SBA regulations, but at least for social disadvantage, there is a presumption, a rebuttable presumption that the SBA applies to members of certain designated groups. Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, uh, and certain other designated groups. There hasn't been an update to this list since 1999. They've never taken a group off the list. I'm bringing these issues up because the court points these out in its decision in this uh, Ultima case, which let me turn right to. In Ultima, this was a small business in Tennessee owned by a white woman who uh, had a variety of IDIQ contracts with the Department of Agriculture. Slowly over time, the business noticed that many of their major contracts were being set aside into the 8A program that was significantly disadvantaging them from being able to compete. They never did apply to the 8A program, which the court did not seem to uh, put any emphasis on. But they believe that because of the rebuttable presumption, they would never have been accepted anyway So they filed suit. This was way back in 2020 uh, on the basis of a violation, asserted violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. They filed suit several years before the Supreme Court ruled in Harvard then. They did. And the, the Harvard decision plays into this decision a bit. But frankly, the court focused a lot more on recent Sixth Circuit precedent rather than the Supreme Court decision. They they cited it once or twice. But this is really a trend anyway against the use of, let's say, broad racial factors for preferences. It it has to be really tailored if you want to survive scrutiny these days. Well, tell us more about the Sixth Circuit then. What were they saying? So the Sixth Circuit and arguably the Supreme Court is is going to be roughly the same. There is a, a Sixth Circuit case that came out during the COVID era. Really, it was about the SBA's use of this rebuttable presumption anyway, because that was the way that they were allocating COVID relief funds for certain businesses. They were giving preferences based on the social disadvantage characteristic. This is as a race-based preference, according to the court here in Tennessee, requires narrow tailoring. The government agreed to that to be for this clear governmental benefit, and it will be subject to strict scrutiny on review. So it needs to be really carefully constructed for a clear government objective. Uh, and this, in the court's view, went too far. In other words, if you are going to claim the disadvantage because of you are a member of a group, it sounds like you also have to actually be disadvantaged and not simply a member of the group. Not necessarily. There can be, in certain instances, uh, race-based programs that are intended to remediate past biases that are carefully tailored in a way that will survive scrutiny by the court. The problem was that in the view of the court here, the 8A program just doesn't cut it for a variety of reasons. Uh, The one big reason that the court focused on 
it essentially failed in every prong of the analysis. But there's no careful analysis by the government, by industry, of which specific groups are prejudiced and how. It's just very generalized looking at government contracting and not looking at one industry versus another industry and only allowing contracts into the 8A program for particular groups based on historical issues in those industries. So in the aftermath then of that ruling, the SBA, they didn't end the 8A program, but they suspended applications to it. So can we infer from that that they are reviewing the structure of it? And it sounds like it could require some pretty profound changes. It certainly could. They didn't necessarily need to suspend all applications at the moment. I suspect that it's an issue of resourcing, that they're going to have to be focusing so much on what they're going to do to the program to make it survive this court's injunction that they just couldn't continue processing applications. But they could have continued taking applications and just not applied a rebuttable presumption. The problem is that for anybody who's looked at these rules, if you don't have the rebuttable presumption, you have to do quite a bit to demonstrate social disadvantage, which takes a lot of review time from the SBA. So the question is going to be first for new applicants, what this is going to look like, and then for existing program participants, what it's going to look like. And it's anybody's guess. Now, current participants, this decision opens the door for facial attacks on the entire program. Like many 8A participants benefited from the rebuttable presumption, maybe most of them. And so if application of the rebuttable presumption is unconstitutional going forward or as applied uh, rather than the, the court distinguished between a facial attack and an as applied challenge. But there's no real distinction between the two in practice. It should be unconstitutional, period. Right? If the court's decision stands up on appeal, it's going to be hard to see how the current program survives. So does that mean that the SBA is going to need to come up with new criteria? both for considering applications and for contracts, and then apply that to all current program participants, make everyone reapply? Uh, maybe. It really might. It also raises the question about any other contractual preference based on protected class, like WOSBs, right? That, that will probably be a little bit easier to defend because sex-based discrimination is subject to a slightly lower level of scrutiny. Just that's the constitutional decisions that have come out over the years. And one benefit the WSB program has is that there are actually goals. Right? Agencies are told you must or are supposed to award X percent. That was something the court actually thought was important. The 8A program does not have those similar goals, which made the government's point that this whole program is supposed to benefit these classes in the view of, of the court somewhat suspect. Right. So the rebuttable presumption exists in the 8A program, but it doesn't necessarily mean that all preference programs or small business contracting goals or minority business or disadvantaged business contracting goals themselves are out the window. This is narrow to 8A in the way the SBA has set up 8A. It is, but in theory, some of these arguments would apply to other types of programs. Got it. What about, say, veteran preference in contracting, for example? Veteran preferences are probably safe. It's not subject to the same levels of scrutiny, and I think the government would have a much easier time defending it. It's hard, hard to rebut that someone is a veteran, I guess. <laughs> you know, if you, what others might be? You mentioned women-owned small businesses. Yeah you think is, is fairly safe? I, I'm not sure if I would say it's fairly safe. It's slightly safer 
that's the one that really leapt to mind as potentially subject to attack in the wake of this decision. But you know, just focusing on the 8A program, the SBA is going to have to do a lot of work in the coming months to figure out where they want to go. I don't think they're going to jettison the program, but it's going to be a heck of a lot of work if they're going to have to fix every current program participant and reevaluate every contract that's been allowed into the 8A program. And what about contracting officers that are using 8A as a basis to make awards, set-asides, and preferences? Could they be protested on the grounds, hey, wait a minute, 8A is rebuttable presumption, Tennessee court said, suspension going on. You can't do that. They could entangle something in a protest on that basis, I'm guessing. They could. They wouldn't frame it as a protest because a lot of those types of decisions are technically protest proof. They would frame it as a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, just like they did in this Tennessee case, and effectively enjoin awards to the program without actually characterizing it as a bid protest. But I think that's exactly right. Someone is likely in the wake of this decision to do just that. And they can't take that case to the GAO. That You have to go to court. So there's a higher bar and greater expense to bringing the whole thing. That's right. And, and they will probably bring it to court in a jurisdiction that is going to be more skeptical of these types of programs. So, for example, the Tennessee. Eastern District of Tennessee. <laughs> right. <laughs> Interesting. So it's really then kind of the ball is in SBA's court now with how it will revamp if it chooses to, the 8A program, or it could appeal. I assume it will appeal, but before it gets to that, there's going to be another hearing, August 31st in this case, to determine the scope of the injunction. Right now, the court did grant a generalized injunction against the use of the rebuttable presumption, period, even though Ultima characterized its challenge as an as-applied challenge, not a facial challenge to the program. But it is very challenging conceptually to distinguish between those two concepts, which the court noted. Uh, so August 31, it's going to be hearing arguments on how it should be crafting this going forward. In the interim, the SBA is trying to figure out how to continue allowing this program. So it may not be, as you say, a facial assault on the program, but if it's only as applied, still, if you take out one brick from a tall wall and it's low in the wall, that wall could come tumbling down eventually. I suspect it might. I think any current program participant should be doing some careful thinking about preparing an application as if they were coming at this anew, uh, arguing for social disadvantage. Now, follow the same characteristics that you would if you didn't have the rebuttable presumption and it is a bit onerous, but the the regulations are there. Assume that the rebuttable, rebuttable presumption, at least in the short term, is not coming back, and you're going to have to come up with a way to justify your participation. Procurement attorney Zach Prince has a partner at Haynes Boone. Thanks so much for that analysis. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure is mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor 
uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, and its membership, and where we were four or five years ago, and where we are today, 
that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.